0: Well, that was sweet. That was so nice. Yeah, incredible. I uh, count it a privilege to know Dan and Karen. Uh, They are a real blessing uh, to us. Uh, It's hard to believe that we're going on five years very soon of Dan being our lead pastor. And uh, he asked me just uh, last week, hey, would you come back and preach uh, a series for us this summer? And It's always a privilege to be invited by my pastor uh, to do that. So, what we're going to do as soon as our uh, technology connects here, there we go, uh, we're going to take a look at what I call Jesus on Mission. When Billy invited me to come during the month of December, and he said that the whole month is about Jesus, obviously, his birth, his coming, I asked him, would it be all right if I spoke of his second coming? And he gave me permission to do so. And what we're going to do in this warm-up to worship, we're going to do a deep dive into his mission, why he came. He didn't come to be this little baby in a cradle. He came to be an incredible king of kings, lord of lords, uh, giving to us victory from a cross. And we're going to look at his mission. Now, as we do this, uh, we're going to really be in the Word of God, and I'm going to be cognizant of time. I want to tell you a story that I was told came out of New Zealand, and uh, a young couple fell in love, and they got married, and they decided to use First John 4.18 for the theme of their wedding. Remember that one, perfect love what? Anybody? Casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear. So they asked the preacher, hey, would you do the sermon for the wedding on that text? The bride had it printed on the invitation, even on the napkins. She even went to the cake baker and said, would you put 1 John 4 18 on the side of the cake? Now, this is New Zealand. Uh, E2, we've got our first international church partner in New Zealand. They're church planters, and there are not very many Christians in New Zealand. The baker did not know the significance of Scripture nor of a citation. So, the wedding was beautiful. The preacher did a great job. They went to the reception. Everybody was taking pictures of the cake. The bride thought, oh, they love my cake. She and her new husband went up to cut the cake, and now she looked and she thought, something is wrong there. The non-believing, non-Christian Biblically illiterate Baker left the Roman numeral one off and John four eighteen says, The fact is you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. All right. Missing that little detail. That just, uh, that, that changes everything when we miss the little details of Scripture. Well, what we're going to do tonight, when it comes to Jesus on mission, we're going to work very hard at not missing a single detail. Now, very quickly, because we're going to be done at 530, normally, this is a two to two and a half hour seminary lecture, Normally. But we're going to move quickly because you are brilliant people. I can tell already there's an aura over you. As soon as I stood up, as a matter of fact, I stood up and I wrote that down, I saw all kinds of pens get out, come out. So what I want us to understand is we're going to look uh, at this, Jesus on mission like a V. My wife, Leah, and I have been married 45 years. We love British murder mysteries, Agatha Christie, et cetera. We always want to figure it out. So there are clues, 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 and we want to solve it before we are told the solution. We're going to start wide, and we're going to come to a life application, a discovery. Then we're going to walk out and enjoy some table fellowship. So you stay with me. We are on a journey. We're going to go deep into what I refer to as Christology, biology, bios, B-I-O-S, in Greek means life. Put it together with that suffix, ology, the study of. Biology, when you and I took that in school, was a study of life systems. If you take in seminary a class called Christology, it is a study of Jesus Christ in a very deep place. We're going to go into a deep dive specifically about the mission of Jesus. Now, what we want to understand, we're going to start wide. John 3, 16, for God so what? Loved the world that he what? Gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. And similar to that, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates what? His love for us in this, that what happens, Bill? Amen. You get a free supper tonight, all right? Okay, very good. So once again, God loves lost people so much that he gave his one and only son. Now, we might not know this one. In Jonah, the fourth chapter, the very last statement is a question of God, of the preacher. The preacher, Jonah, is fed up. He's expecting fire and brimstone to come down on what city? On Nineveh, he's sitting outside. He's, he's uh, having heat stroke, and he's just fit to be tied. And God says in verse 11, chapter 4 of Jonah, should I not be concerned for Nineveh, that great city with 120,000 people in it who cannot tell their right hand from their left? Should I not be concerned for that great city? He's not concerned about the unemployment rate. He's not concerned about the inflation rate. He's concerned about who? Lost people, exactly correct. So if we had unlimited time, we could walk through Scripture and see, here's a discovery. God loves lost people. God loves lost people. Let's go a little bit deeper, all right? Uh, John 15, 13, the context. uh, This is the last night in the life of Jesus. And he says, no greater love has anyone than this. Then what? Then he laid down his life for his friend. No greater love has anyone than this. Then he laid down his life for his friend, and obviously, to whom was he referring? Himself, himself. Now, Mark ten. This is important. Context before content. Mark looks like a funnel again, and. Chapters 1 through 7 are the first three years in the life of Jesus when it comes to Mark. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 are the last six months in his life. And chapters 11 through 16 are the last seven days of his life. That's the shape of Mark. Now, chapter 10 puts us in T minus six months in counting. If you and I knew that we only had six months to live, what kind of conversations would we have with people? Important ones, exactly correct. And in chapter 10, he's having a very important conversation with a rich, young ruler. Thank you, Bill. A rich, so easy to say Bill here, you know that? (laughs) A rich, young ruler. Now, so the rich, young ruler... He runs up to Jesus, falls on his knees, and he poses a question. Tell me, what must I do to what? Be saved. What must I do to be saved? Now, before Jesus even answers his question, now think with me for a moment. Jesus, the mystery of the Christ, not only is he fully human, but he's fully what? What? He's fully God. He's fully divine. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, In Christ, the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Colossians 2 and 9. So, Jesus knows that this young man is going to what? Say thanks, but no thanks. Uh, Talk to the hand, Jesus. And he walks away sad. Jesus already knows that. But in verse 21... Jesus looked at him and loved him, even though he was very lost spiritually and was going to stay lost. He looked at him and he what? He loved him. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion on them for they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That word compassion in Greek, splagna. Splagna is a biological, a medical term meaning bowel. When Jesus saw broken, hurting, lost people, deep empathy came welling up from within him. Sympathy is acknowledging someone's loss. Empathy is getting into their loss, feeling their loss, entering their suffering. So, When it came to the Son, like Father, like Son, Jesus loves lost people. Jesus loves lost people more than he cares about the color of the carpet. Jesus cares more about lost people than the schedule of a church. Jesus, like his father, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, loves lost people. So, Jesus knew his mission. We're going to, we're about right here. We're about right here. We're moving along. Jesus knew his mission. Now, this is where I want you to check these texts out. This is very important that you go to 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, that's pretty much the beginning of that paragraph. But in verse 20, a very powerful statement is made that many times we don't take, this is one of those little details that we miss, like that Roman numeral one. So Jesus in First Peter chapter one, he's being uh, described. Somebody wanna use your outdoor voice and read that for us, please, Anybody? 18 through 20. Thank you, Matthew. Said chapter 1 verse 20. 18, through 20. 18 through 20. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, mm-hmm. like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. Okay. Uh, before the what of the world? The foundation. He was foreknown. He was ordained. He was chosen to be what kind of a sacrifice? A spotless Lamb of God. And that was determined when? Before the what? the foundation of the earth was laid. I don't know what other versions people might have, but even one of them says he was chosen before the foundation of the earth, the creation of the earth. So before God said, let there be light, Jesus was in. Now, God the Father, Jesus the Son, the Holy Spirit, they're all three in one. But if we're going to look at theology, there's what is called the ontological trinity. That's just their identity. Then there's what is called the economic trinity, and that means what work they do, the the economic trinity. So Jesus, his work is to seek and to save the lost. That's his work, his economic, the economic working member of the trinity. I'm going to go and I'm going to seek and save what was lost, Luke 19.10. And that that determination was made when? This is very important. Before God said... Let there be light. Before Genesis 1-1, Jesus said, I'm in. Kind of, anybody watch um, uh, Mission Impossible? All right, so whether the movies, for those who are younger, Ethan, your mission, Ethan, should you choose to accept it. Those of us who are younger, Sunday night, 9 o'clock, your mission, Jim, Jim Phelps, your mission, Jim, should you choose to accept it, all right? So Jesus, he said yes to his mission before God said let there be light. That's very important. you got to hold on to that. It's going to show up later on. And many times we don't understand that. Luke nine fifty one. I want you to look in your Bibles. This is huge. How many chapters are there in Luke? Anybody? 24. Who said that? Noah, did you say that? Bill, you said that. Uh, so, 24 chapters. Now, in chapter 9, verse 51, and, and by the way, Luke wrote it, what did he do for a living? He was a physician. Now, in verse 51, as the time approached for him to what? What's it say there? Is the time approached for him to be taken up. That's referring to his what? His crucifixion, his ascension, as the time approached for him to be taken up, Jesus resolutely set out for where? For Jerusalem, this, chapter 9, verse 51, is the beginning of the end. This is when he begins his final journey to Jerusalem. Chapter 9? And there are 24 chapters in Luke? You've got to be kidding. And he shows up, if you just glance at 1928, he shows up in Jerusalem. So from 951 to 1928, that is one-third of the content of Luke. And it's all about the final journey of Jesus to Jerusalem. So everything that you and I read from 951 on... It's in his final moments, his final weeks of life, and, we, and, and when we know that, we're reading that with a different perspective. It's the urgency of that Luke, and I'm grateful that Dr. Luke put it there, this physician. You know, many of us who have medical files, that they're all online now or digitized, but back in the day, files were yay thick. Doctors like details, and Dr. Luke wrote the most quantity of the New Testament. Acts and Luke surpasses in quantity the writing of any other New Testament author. Now, so Jesus knew his mission. This is huge. Right now, we're, we're going to understand something that is massively important. I want us to look in 26, 18 of Matthew. And here, Jesus is sending his guys out to go arrange for uh, the Last Supper. And in verse 18, you see there's a phrase that says, My appointed time is near. You see that there? He's referring to his what? His crucifixion, he's, he's referring to his death. Now, that, that's going to happen during a particular holiday. Anybody know the holiday? Yes. Passover. Uh, we know that Jesus had a public ministry of basically three, three and a half years. It doesn't say that anywhere in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. How we determine that is that he attended three Passovers from the time that he had been immersed by John the Immerser And he dies at the third Passover. And when it says, my appointed time is near, he has to die during the feast of Passover and on the day of unleavened bread when all of the Passover lambs were to be sacrificed. He has to die on a certain day. He's got to die on a certain day, on the day of unleavened bread, when they're going to kill all of the Passover uh, Passover lambs. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So, he is prophesying the moment he must die. My appointed time is near. And who sets that date for him? None other than his father my appointed. It's a specific moment in time. He cannot die during the Feast of Booths. He cannot die during the Feast of Pentecost. He must die during the Feast the Passover. Now, if you will look in John 3, in verse 14, we know 16 quite well, but verse 14, as Moses lifted the serpent on the stake, so the Son of Man must be Lift it up. What's he referring to? The cross, exactly. And if we look in chapter twelve of John, verses thirty through thirty-three, he makes that very same statement. And in verse thirty-three, he even uh, John even says Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would uh, he, he would die. He's prophesying, prophesying how he must die, not only when, but how. He has to die in a certain way. Now, this is where we're just going to sit on this for a moment. Jesus prophesied he had to die on a certain day and in a certain way. If he had died on any other day or in any other way, if he had died when they attempted to throw him off from the hill of Nazareth, if he, had die- if he had died by an assassin's blade, a sword, a knife, if he had died by stoning, the prophecy would not be true. And that would make Jesus a what? A liar, a false prophet. And if Jesus died on any other day in any other way, he could not be our sinless, spotless Lamb of God, that what? Takes away the sins of the world. If he had died on any other day in any other way, we would not be in this room right now. There would not be an LCF. There would not be a King's Church. There would not be an Indian Creek. There would not be a Liberty University. There would not be a Moody Bible College. Because Jesus would have failed at his mission. Do you see how huge that is? Do not miss this little detail because it's ginormous. Jesus knew his mission and he protected his mission. He resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And that word resolutely in Greek, it means he took aim for the cross. And he did not in any way allow himself to be deterred because he loves who? Lost people. And who's numbered in and among them? We are. So now as we go deeper, I want you to put yourself in this. Why was Jesus so determined? Why was he so passionate and zealous? It's because he loved me while I was yet a sinner. And he would not allow anything get in his way of that cross because he was on his way there to redeem me from the pit of hell. And you, you put yourself in the equation. You must, all right? Okay, now Jesus protected his mission in four specific ways. And... uh, Again, these are some of the little details that many times we end up missing. We're about right here. Stay with me. Number one, we're going to learn from Matthew chapter 12. Somebody, if you look that up, please, somebody else, John 7, verse 1, and somebody else, please, John 11, 53 and 54, and I'm going to need three people with outdoor voices to read those texts. So if somebody would do Matthew 12, somebody John 7, and someone else John 11, pretty please. Go for it, anybody. All right. Matthew 12, uh, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from them, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all, mm-hmm. and charged them that they should not make him known. Mm-hmm. The Pharisees wanted to what him? They wanted to counsel against him, destroy him. Destroy him. Uh, If something's destroyed, it no longer what? It exists. So what might be a synonym for that word destroy? Kill. Kill. The Pharisees were out to kill him. So what did he do? He withdrew. He did not go to that uh, place where danger awaited. What about John 7 verse 1? Uh, he would not go in Judea because the Jews wanted to what, Victor? They wanted to kill him. So he avoided Judea. He would not go there. What's it say over in John 11, 53, 54? Mm -hmm. The Jews were looking to take his life, so he did not move among the Jews. So, number one, he withdrew. He deliberately avoided places where his life would be at risk of assassination. And if he had died by a sword, a spear, uh, by being thrown off from the hill at Nazareth, he could not die by crucifixion see he's deliberately protecting his mission here's another way let's take a look at Matthew 21 verse 45 and 46 if somebody would read that for us Hmm. So, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those who wanted to arrest him for the purpose of killing him, who did they fear? The crowd. They feared the crowd because the crowd what? They loved him. It's just like if Jesus is right here behind Matthew and uh, he's saying what needs to be said to the Jews, and the Jews are over here, and they are just filled with hatred for him, and they want to kill him. What are we going to do? We're going to surround him. We're going to be like a uh, protective detail, uh, uh, a secret service, if you will. So how did he protect his mission? He surrounded himself with people who knew him and loved him, who were his friends. He surrounded himself with people who would be protective of him. We're going to see that play out during the last week of his life. Number three, over in Mark chapter 4, if somebody would look that up, please, thirty-three, thirty-four. 34. And while you're doing that, Luke 19, 10. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save. What was lost? The lost, the Son of Man. He said, the son, similar to Mark 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Anybody got Mark 4, 33, 34 ready? With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Mm-hmm. What was his favorite method of teaching, Matthew? Parables. parables. Now think about that, He, depending on how we count them, there are about 38 parables of Jesus, and about a third of them have to do with money and the things that money can buy. It's fascinating. Now, uh, a parable, that was a cryptic kind of teaching, a story that had a punchline to it, and sometimes even the disciples did not get the punchline. They would go indoors and they would say, Lord, what did did that one mean? You know, can can you help us with understanding that one? And obviously, if some of the disciples didn't get it, the Pharisees, they're scratching their head. Is he talking about us again? Is that one about us? Is that about us? So when he's speaking in a cryptic manner, he's not clear. He is not concise. But he's getting their attention. When he calls himself the son of man, he's not calling himself the son of God. What if he had called himself the son of God? They would have stoned him on the crime of blasphemy, Blasphemy, testimony of two or more witnesses. We heard him say it. He called himself the son of God. That's blasphemy. He can be stoned. So he's number three. How did he protect his mission? He spoke very carefully. Incredibly so. He spoke carefully when it came to his uh, interaction with people. Now, during the last week of his life, he's going to be very crystal clear. He's going to be very exact. He's going to uh, make sure that what needs to be said is said. So number one... He withdrew from dangerous places. Number two, he surrounded himself with people who loved him. Number three, he spoke carefully. Now number four, I'm going to give to you the, the fourth way that he protected his mission. And then we're going to walk through some texts. Number four: Jesus expertly. He expertly directed every detail in the last seven days of his life. He expertly directed every detail. In, in the last week of his life. Now, let's go in our Bibles, first of all, to Luke chapter 11, or excuse me, Mark chapter 11. And again, uh, as we look at the structure of Mark, this is the beginning of the last seven days of his life, chapter 11, 11, 12 through 16, uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, last seven days of his life. It, notice the triumphal what is happening Entry. So, this is the parade into Jerusalem for what holiday? Passover. Passover. All right. Now, verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and where did he go? To the temple. Now, keep in mind, if, if we are, let's, let's say all of our families live up in Capernaum. And where's Capernaum? On what body of water? the Sea of Galilee. So we all live in Capernaum. We're going to uh, Jerusalem for Passover. I just got back from hiking the Jesus Trail from Old City Nazareth to Capernaum. Did it right before the war started. It's a 41-mile trail, uh, and it commemorates the route that Jesus took when they attempted to throw him off from the hill and to kill him. That took us four days. Now, if we were going, our family, from Capernaum all the way to Jerusalem and we've got little ones with us, we're not going to hike 10 to 12 miles a day. We're going to take probably 14, 12 to 14 days, maybe 10 days to get there, depending on how uh, the little ones can keep up. They arrive in Jerusalem and men would immediately go Where? to the temple, to the house of God. And Passover to a Jew, even to this day, Passover is like Christmas and Easter to whom? To us. It's the most beloved holiday. And Jerusalem for Passover was filled with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims. So the streets were shoulder to shoulder, burgeoning with people. He went to the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Who lived in Bethany? Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And what had just happened with Lazarus? He was just raised from the dead. So, he looks around at everything, at the temple, which is in Jerusalem, and he leaves Jerusalem because it's late in the day, meaning the sun is beginning to set, it's late in the day, and he goes just not even two miles to the village of Bethany. And now, nowhere in the, in the Gospels do we read where he stayed. We can only speculate. But people oftentimes stayed with family and friends when they went for a holiday, it's reasonable for us to think that he went to stay with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Remember, shortly before his death, uh, he's going to have a banquet. And uh, and even earlier in the Gospels, in, in, in Luke, we read that he and the disciples were in the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Because, remember, somebody sat at his feet listening to his every word while somebody else was busy with all of the preparation. So we know that their house was large enough to accommodate those 13 men. Now, notice verse 12, the next day, so they wake up, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. What does he do? He what? Yes, exactly, Cindy. He curses the fig tree. There's no fig on the tree. He curses that tree. Now, where is that tree? It's in Bethany. Hold that thought. It's in Bethany. All right, then notice uh, verse 15, on reaching where? Where'd he go? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So, he's out here in Bethany. He curses this fig tree, and then he goes to Jerusalem. Where does he go once he gets into town? He goes where? He goes to the temple. And he goes into the temple, and what does he do? He he turns over the money-changing tables. Now, this this is huge. Don't miss this detail. So, if all of us are from Capernaum, and we're going to take maybe five lambs with us so that we're going to sacrifice the lamb, and we, together, as a group of family and friends, we're going to eat our lambs on the day of unleavened bread when the lambs are being killed. Passover, the Passover meal. So we get there and he's very upset because they have turned his father's house into a den of thieves now here's why stop and think with me for a moment somebody shows up and they uh hey here priest here's our lamb what you can't use this lamb what do you do drag it through the mud on the way here this lamb is blemished. Well, what are we going to do? We've got to uh, sacrifice this lamb right now. It's the day of unleavened bread. Come on, come on. Well, you've got to get a, a lamb that's not blemished. Oh, go down the hallway to the left, and that's our unblemished lamb department. Uh, they're already there. They're pre-certified. Hurry, get over there. So we run down to the, uh, uh, the unblemished lamb department, and we take up a love offering to buy our five lambs that we desperately need because of our lambs, are all unblem- or they're all blemished. And the guy there with the lambs, you can't use that money here. We go, what's wrong with our money? It's not temple money. Why is it not temple money? Whose image is on it? Ah, Caesar's image is on it. That makes it a graven. Oh, that's at the top of the top 10 list. Thou shalt not have any graven images, no idols. You can't use that money. Well, what are we going to do? This is the only money we have. Well, go down to wing B of the temple, and there's the money-changing department. Hurry, go get that money changed, and then get back over here and buy your lambs, and then you can sacrifice. See, the temple was the number one economic engine of Israel in the day of Jesus. And the high priest was a very wealthy man. A very wealthy man. So when he turns these tables over, it's not the first time he did it. It's the second time he did it at the beginning of his public ministry. And now he's doing it again. And notice their response. The chief priest, verse 18. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, when they heard this, when he confronted them for making it a den of robbers, when they heard this, they began looking for a way to what? kill him, for they feared him, because of the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, what did they do? Verse 19, when evening came, they went out of the city. Well, that's interesting. They went out of the city. I wonder where they went. Where'd they go? How do we know that they went to Bethany, Bill? Verse 20, there it is, the fig tree. And Cindy, where was that fig tree? In Bethany. So, what we want to see here is this pattern. It's daytime, he's in the temple, he is riling the Jews who want to kill him. See, now he's saying what needs to be said. He's not being careful with his words. You have made my father's house a den of robbers. They despise him for that confrontation. What do they want to do? They want to kill him. He's turning up the heat on the burner of their hate. What does he do? The sun is beginning to set. He's leaving Dodge. He's getting out of the city because some bad things happen when? In the dark. Bad things happen in the dark. And who's looking for him? All of the Pharisees. They're lo- they want to kill him. So he's getting out of the city, and he's going to a safe place. I like to think that it's Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and they're going to protect him. The sun comes up. Where does he go? He goes back into Jerusalem, and he says what needs to be said. See, there's a pattern here, and he's doing all of this... To make sure that he gets where? To the cross. Because who does he love? Us, the world. And whenever, by the way, for God so loved the world, don't think of a globe, an orb, flying through space at thousands of miles per hour relative speed. The word world means God so loved people who opposed him. And that would include who? Me. Us. Mm -hmm. All right, now, let's go over to Luke chapter 22. So this has gone on all week. Go into the temple, leave Dodge, sleep well, soundly, safely at night, go back into the temple all week long. And it is an emotional roller coaster for those disciples. They are exhausted Now, in Luke 22, the end of the week is drawing nigh. Now, as we get into this, I need somebody please to look up Exodus 12 and have Exodus 12 ready to go. Notice in verse 7, then came the day of what? Unleavened bread on which the what? Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Had to be. See, there it is. The Passover was seven days long, and there was a day during the feast when the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Just not any old day, a certain day. And Jesus had to die on that certain day. Now, uh, Verse 8, Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it, they asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters. Say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large upper room, all furnished, make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. What stands out to us? What stands out to us? Pardon? The precision, absolutely. Such detail, and he's completely in control of that detail. Keep talking it through. He's, he sent them, not himself. Again, very protective. Yes, you get a free supper tonight. Yes, that jar of water. Think with me for a moment. The city is filled with hundreds of thousands of pilgrims, and the Jewish men all looked alike long hair, curls, beards, and the same color of clothing. Dirty, all right? They all look hundreds of thousands of men and these two guys, they got to find the guy who's going to take them to uh, 3872 South Street. They got to find this guy out of hundreds of thousands and what's going to stand out like a sore thumb? Some guy has got a water jar because who carried water? The ladies did and I'm not being a chauvinist here. It's just the cultural thing and as soon as the guy saw, there he is. He's got the water. That's the guy. They Hey, our teacher tells us you're going to take us to, oh, you're the guy. Oh, I can finally take this off from my head. And off they go to the house. And they found things just as they had been told. Now, we have to ask why all the trouble? Simple. Don't miss this little detail. Who's got Exodus 12 for me? Very good. Jonathan? I need you to read, please, now we're going to read, Jonathan's going to read Exodus 12, verse 6. This is the first Passover. Where did it happen? What country? Egypt. Egypt. Jonathan. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Ah, uh, right there. Stop right there. We're they going to kill the lambs. At twilight. When's twilight, anybody? Sundown. Sundown. Think this through. We are now in Jerusalem. The Passover lambs have to be killed. It's the day of unleavened bread. They're going to be killed at sundown, twilight. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived near the time of Jesus, in one of his writings, said that. There were 20,000 priests from the tribe of Levi. They worked in four divisions. So divide 20 by four, we have 5,000. There would be 5,000 priests uh, in one division. So a division would be on duty. The other priests would be home. Then they would switch out. When it's the day of unleavened bread and you've got... from twilight sundown uh, maybe a 60 to a 90 minute hour to kill tens of thousands of lambs nobody took vacation nobody called in sick it was all hands where on deck now remember how they would kill a lamb they would the priest would straddle the lamb pull up on the chin take a very sharp blade cut the throat, gather the blood in some kind of a vessel, what would they do with the blood of that lamb? Pour it out where? On the altar. Thank you, Bill, on the altar. Then here we have this limp, dead carcass of a lamb. What would they do with that lamb? Who would eat it? Thank you, the family that brought it. So that priest would give us the lamb back, And we would take it to wherever we're staying. And where do we have to do this? Anybody? In in Jerusalem. Cannot be out in Bethany. Cannot be in Galilee. It has to be in the city of God, Jerusalem. There were three holidays that God said, you come into my presence three times a year. So they hand us this lamb. We're going to take it to wherever we're staying in Jerusalem. We're going to skin it. We're going to gut it. We're going to prepare it. We're going to nuke it, boil it, flash fry it. No, how are we going to cook it? We're going to roast it. If this is happening at sundown, when we're standing in line with 200 other thousand people and they're killing 50,000 lambs, we're going to finally get back to Dodge where we're staying. We're going to skin it, et cetera, and we're going to cook it. What time are we eating supper? Ah, do you see what we're doing here? We're connecting the details. We're going to be eating at 11 o'clock that night, maybe. And where does Jesus have to meet it? eat it? In Jerusalem. And it's very dark at 11 o'clock at night, and bad things happen in the dark. So that upper room had to be a what? A safe, secret location. That's why all the trouble. That's why all of the detail, that's why all of the determination, and why did Jesus do that? He had to get where? To the cross, and he did that for me and for you. Don't don't ever overlook that, all right? So, now, last of all, we're going to be in John chapter 13. I love this. Here's another hermeneutical insight. John 13, John 14, John 15, John 16, John 17, John 18. Six chapters of John are roughly eight hours in the life of Jesus. And one of the rules of hermeneutics, when God takes such a ginormous section of Scripture for one simple evening... There's a lot there that he does not want us to miss. So all of the detail, John 13 through 18, the last night in the life of Jesus. Let's look here. Notice in the very beginning of that chapter, uh, verse 2, the evening meal was already what? Being served. What, what did you say, Billy? You say 13-2. And the... Mm-hmm. Supper being ended Oh being ended that's interesting so they've already eaten okay all right so the point is yep yeah. the, the point is food has been on the table the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, the roasted lamb the, the point is they've eaten all right now watch this uh, Jesus verse three, knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God, that he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, he took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and what does he do then? He washes the feet of the disciples. And this is when, either during or after the meal. Something is wrong with that picture. Now, we know from verse uh, 15... I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So there's one of the reasons why he washed their feet to to provide a lesson, but there's a secondary reason. Think with me for a moment. When somebody entered a house, what happened? The feet were washed always as soon as they entered the house. The streets were filthy. There There was no indoor plumbing. I'm not going any further. And the fact that they've already eaten... The fact that their feet are still filthy would tell us what? They were in a hurry or who washed feet? Servants washed feet. The fact that their feet are still filthy would make us assume what? There were no servants to wash feet the moment they walked in. Why are there no servants? Because they are in a secret location, a lowly servant, a slave, a house slave could easily be what? Bribed. After all, did the Jews bribe somebody else? They most certainly did with 30 pieces of silver. It is very safe for us to speculate that these Jews wanted Jesus dead. If you see him, because where does he have to be eating the Passover? In Jerusalem. He's got to be in town. If you see him, you let us know, hey, we'll make it worth your while. So, this upper room has to be an absolute secret location. Then notice in chapter 13, verse 21, after he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit. He testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which one he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who is? John. The disciple whom Jesus loved, John was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, psst, psst, ask him, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, Lord, who is it? Now, notice the cryptic response of Jesus. Don't miss this little detail. It's the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly. No one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Dipping the piece of bread, do what you have to do and do it quickly. And everybody is wondering, "What, what, what just happened? What if Jesus had not been so cryptic? Who is it, Lord? Who's going to betray you? It's Judas! What would have happened? They would have stopped him. He would not have gotten out of that room. It would have been lights out, Judas. You see how he's expertly managing every detail of the last week of his life? He has to Hand him over, betray him to the authorities. He's got to get out of that room. And then over in chapter 18, where do they go? Chapter 18, verse 2, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place. Verse 1, what was that place when Jesus had finished praying? He left with his disciples. They crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove. He and his disciples went into it. This is what olive grove. Gethsemane, this is Gethsemane. Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. This is incredible. Gethsemane in Greek and or Aramaic means olive press. What's an olive press? It's a piece of farm equipment. It's quite costly. And if I'm going to have an olive press, I better have what? A whole bunch of what? Olives. I better have some olives. So, this is not Gethsemane State Park or Gethsemane National Forest. Gethsemane would have been private what? Private property. And if Jesus is meeting there often with his disciples, would he have trespassed? No, not at all, because he is the sinless what? Spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He would not commit trespass. What would he do? He would talk to the owner of that olive grove. May my disciples and I come and sit in the shade of your trees from time to time. It is safe for us to assume that they're going there often. It's private property that they would have gotten permission. And Jesus must go there because Judas would have known that's where Jesus is. And then they show up. A fight breaks out. Uh, There was a guy by the name of Malchus. What happened to Malchus? He lost his ear. Who took his ear off? Peter did. What did Peter do for a living? He was a fisherman. He knew how to cast a net. He did not know how to swing a sword. He was going for his head. Malchus moved, and he only got his ear Jesus healed him. Jesus quickly calmed, took control of what could have become a what? A riot. And what could have happened during the riot? He could have been killed, run through by a sword or a spear, but Jesus knows he has to die how? On a cross cross by crucifixion. He takes control of the moment and he allows himself to be handed over to both Roman and Jewish authorities and we know the rest of the story. He expertly managed, directed every detail of the last week of his life because he knew he had to die on a certain day, the day of unleavened bread when all of the Passover lambs had to be killed. And he did it by crucifixion, dying in a certain way. And his whole motivation was Jesus loves lost people. He knew his mission, and he protected his mission. Now, we are right here. That was a lot. But this is huge. Jesus paid the full cost to fulfill his mission. Now, what I want us to think about... I'm sure we have musicians in the room. What is that in music? A crescendo mark. And in Italian, crescendo means get louder, exactly. To intensify, get louder. I believe that the suffering of Jesus intensified where we typically begin and stay is with the physical cost of our salvation that's where our our brains rest typically that jesus right here there was a physical cost he was scourged crown of thorns impalement. There was a physical co- All we have to do is get out Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, and through cinematography, we can see the physical cost that Jesus paid for us to have eternal life. We can see it, undeniable. But I don't want to stay just there. I believe that it was far more intense. I believe that there was an emotional cost. Jesus, it says in Colossians chapter 1, that everything was made by him and for him. So that means Jesus participated in creation. Everything was made by him. He's fully and completely God. Colossians 2 verse 9. So while Jesus is on that cross, he is allowing the creature to whom he gave the breath of life kill him, the creator. Now just stop and think with me. Jews had three great fears. Number one, to be hung on a tree. It says in Deuteronomy, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. Cursed is anyone by God who is crucified, hung on a tree. So, all of the Jews, they're looking at this, you are under God's curse. He's God. Second great fear of the Jew, to be naked in front of other people. How is he appearing on that cross? They stripped him of all of his clothing. We know that for a fact because one of the gospels says that the guards gambled over his seamless undergarment. His seamless undergarment is not on his body. They're not going to take him down and then take that undergarment. See, they, whenever you and I open the Bible, we have to understand that Scripture was written in a survivalist culture. So Jonathan, if he's going to keep his wife and family alive for one more day, he had to go to work. Whether fishing, farming, crafting, whatever, he had to earn enough money for one more day to keep his family alive for one more day. It was survivalist. And that means the only clothing that Jonathan and his family had, they didn't have their winter wardrobe, their summer wardrobe, their spring wardrobe in different closets through the house. The only clothing they had was where? On their body. So, Jesus, that seamless undergarment, his robe, it's all coming off, and people wanted it. That's why whenever there was war, they would what the bodies. They would strip the bodies of what they had. So, where is this anchored in, this thought of being naked in front of people? Where does that come from? We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. 3. Who told you you were naked? Because remember what happens? They made what? Adam and Eve, they made clothing out of leaves, fig leaves. Who told you you were naked? So from that time on, Jews had this great fear of being naked. As a matter of fact, a guy by the name of Noah. Oh, Noah. Remember, Noah goes on a world cruise. He gets off from the cruise liner. He plants a vineyard, grows some grapes, makes some wine, drinks too much, gets drunk, and he is stark naked. And one of his three boys see him. And what did dad do about that boy? He cursed him. Jews, a fear, a second fear of a Jew is that they would be naked in front of people. There's Jesus. You are under God's curse. The third great fear of a Jew, not being buried. Father Abraham bought a cave, the cave at Machpelah, to bury whom? Sarah, his beloved wife, and he paid full market price. He insisted on it. And from that time on, from Father Abraham days, every Jew wanted to be buried. What was what was a common practice of the Romans? They would leave the bodies on the cross to strike fear in the Jews. If you if you step out of line, that's going to be you. And so those corpses became food for the birds of the air. So they're looking at him. They're spitting on him. They are reviling him. And who is he? Their creator. That had to have broken his heart. When he's riding into Jerusalem, what does he break out into? Tears. He weeps over Jerusalem because they have rejected him. So don't think that his suffering was only physical. But the greatest suffering of all, the greatest suffering of all, is spiritual. It's huge. Now, what we're going to do, Jews and timekeeping. To a Jew, when did the day start? Sundown. Do we know why? Why? And it's still true to this day, when you go to Jerusalem, let's say it is uh, Friday and the sun is setting, you're going to hear sirens go off. Doors are going to be shuttered because it's the beginning of the Sabbath. Sabbath Sabbath begins at sundown. Days began at sundown. It goes all the way back to Genesis 1. Every single day there was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. There was evening, there was morning the third day. So when God spoke, I believe with all of my heart that God spoke everything into existence by fiat, F-I-A-T. Fiat, not a car, fiat, F-I-A-T, by order of his command. My God is so powerful, he can speak and it happens. Now, Part of creation was the measurement of time. So, there was a 24-hour day. And when for a Jew did the day begin? It began at sundown. Now, think with me for a moment. It's 6 p.m. Jesus is in the upper room, 11, 12 o'clock p.m., eating the last supper. He is then... uh, in the Gethsemane, 2, 3 o'clock, he's arrested. He stands an illegal trial with a Sanhedrin uh, before sunrise. Jewish law, you could not do that. He stands a Roman trial before both uh, Pontius Pilate as well as Herod. Remember, Herod was in town. And then he's handed over. He's scourged, and it's now 9 a.m. Is it still the same day? Oh, yeah. It's still the same day because 24 hours have not passed. And it's the day of unleavened bread on which what? The Passover lambs had to die. Incredible. This is the third hour. And you'll read of that in Scripture, the third hour. For us, it's 9 a.m. Now, he dies at the, what is called, the ninth hour. And that for us is obviously 3 p.m., We would want to ask ourselves, how could six hours on the cross be equivalent to all of humanity suffering hell for all of eternity? Isn't that a mind bender? And it's from the fact that Jesus—we're going to figure it out. Jesus spoke six times—or excuse me, seven times—from the cross. Now, we don't have them in order in the Gospels, but we can speculate, all right? Let's just brainstorm. What were the seven things that Jesus said from the cross? Ready? Anybody? It is finished. Yep, it's huge. Father, forgive them. them. They do not know what they do. I thirst. thirst. What else? Okay, why have you forsaken me? But there's still more to that statement. Ah, Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's huge. You'll understand why in just a moment. So we've got four, three more. Ah, yes, to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. There's five, two more. Okay, into thy hands I commit my spirit. There's something missing there. Father, thank you very much. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There's six. One more. Ah, yes. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Very good. Those are the seven. Now, we're going to speculate and try to put them in order. And from these comments, we discover why six hours on the cross, our Jesus was equivalent to us going to hell for eternity. All right? We know the first one had to be Father forgive them. Had to be, because he said that while they were what? While they were nailing him to the cross, while they were crucifying him. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. So, that was right here at the third hour. While they're pounding in the nails, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. All right, now, maybe he said these next two, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. And today you'll be with me in paradise because they are longer statements, and he has more what? More strength. Could be that he said those two next. Then, number four, I thirst. We don't know when he said that, but one of the reasons, think with me for a moment. Have you ever been dehydrated? Maybe from hard work, maybe you ran a marathon, maybe you did a sporting event. Have you ever been dehydrated? And if you get dehydrated, well, what's wrong? It what? It swells, it gets dry. So while Jesus is on that cross, he's losing massive body fluid. And he, he's got to declare something and that tongue is dry. And so he says, I thirst, because he's going to say, it is finished. It is finished. And that, I'm, I'm going to mention it in the sermon tonight. If I tell you now what it says, is it okay if I repeat it during the sermon? Is that all right? Okay, all right. So it is finished, it, telestai. And in Greek, it means paid. Uh, I like to think of it, before I went to seminary, my undergraduate degree is in finance, and I was a commercial banker, and somebody would come into the bank, a businessman, and he would uh, say, a farmer, hey, Gary, I cannot pay my six-month operating note off, the harvest was poor, I, all I can do is pay interest. I would go into the vault, I would get the note, I would bring it out, I would write up a new note, and I would stamp this note, paid by renewal. And I would hand him the note paid by renewal because I've got a new note that he signed for the same amount of principal. All I did was roll it forward another six months in hopes that he will be able to pay that off in six months. Now, if he has a great harvest and he comes in and he writes a check to the bank for principal plus interest, I'm going to get the note out of the vault. I'm going to stamp it what? Paid in full. And I'm going to hand him that note. In the Old Testament, every time a goat, a lamb, a pigeon, a dove, an ox, whenever an animal was sacrificed in the Old Testament, all that happened was paid by renewal. The sin debt was rolled forward, was rolled forward. Hebrews chapter 10, without the shedding of blood, there can be no Remission of sin, forgiveness of sin. So then what does John the baptizer say? Behold, chapter 1 of John, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And again, world means people opposed to God. So Jesus, when he says, it is finished, bam, paid in full. Billy Henderson's sins have been paid in full, past, present, and future by the blood of the Lamb, paid in full. Some people see that, oh, that Jesus was just saying that his life was over. No, no. It means that he paid my sin debt, a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to take it away, and his name is Jesus, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. That's why he he had to be able to declare that, I thirst, moisten my tongue. I want to declare something so it is finished and then father into your hands that's happening at the ninth hour father into your hands I commit my spirit he hung his head and he died now there's one missing I haven't said it yet what is it my God my God oh I love this think with me for a moment If something is repeated in Scripture, it's important. It's another rule of hermeneutics. If something's repeated, it's important. When Abraham had the knife above Isaac, an angel of the Lord shouted, Abraham, Abraham! What did the angel of the Lord want? Ah, his attention. When Moses was standing at the burning bush, Moses, Moses! Take off your sandals, for the ground on which you're standing is holy. What did God want? His attention. When the young man Samuel was in Shiloh at the house of God, he was trying to get a good night's sleep. But there was this voice that kept saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he finally said, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. What did the Lord want? His attention. Saul is on the road to Damascus. And, a, and Jesus appeared to him in a blinding light. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus wanted his what? Attention. So when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he want? God's attention. Attention. Now, stay with me. While Jesus is walking on planet Earth, he always called God his Father. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Father, I brought you glory by completing the work you sent me to do. John 17, verse 4. Father, Father, Father. And if he was speaking about him, he always said, Father. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father who art in heaven. He always used that term father, a term of endearment, submissive endearment. But now, on the cross, it's completely different. And why is that? It's going to tell us why six hours on the cross are sufficient for our eternity in hell. When Jesus was in Gethsemane, he said a prayer. How many times? three times, and the prayer was always the what? It was the same. He prayed the same thing three times. Father, there's that Father again. Father, if it be possible, what? Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done, not mine. Now think with me for a moment. A lot of people look at that, and they go, oh, he was changing his mind in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't want to die on the cross. Uh, no, uh, because he said yes to the mission when? Before the, Before the foundation of the earth was laid. I love that. Before God said, let there be light, Jesus said, I'm in. He's not changing his mind. So that word cup, may this cup pass from me, has to mean something else. Somebody look up Isaiah 51:17, please. Isaiah 51, 17. May this cup pass from me. What do we have for Isaiah 51, 17? And this is just one use of this phrase. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath. (sighs) Drunk to the dregs, Mm the the cup of Mm staggering. Matthew, the cup of his wrath. May your wrath pass from me. May your wrath pass from me. Now, just stop and think. Jesus had never experienced the wrath of his father. As a matter of fact, their relationship was incredible. Uh, You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased as he's coming out of the Jordan River. Top of the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. The Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Father. And now Jesus, on that cross, in those six hours, he's going to experience something from the Father he had never before experienced, and that is the rage, the fury, the wrath of God. And in Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born, 700 years Isaiah prophesied more about the Messiah than anybody else in the Old Testament. And in chapter 53, and God laid on him what? The iniquity of us all. There came a moment on that cross when God laid on him the iniquity of us all. My sins were put on him. And the wages of sin is death. Jesus had to die experiencing the wrath, the rage, the fury of God that was meant for me. And guess what? For you. He took it. That's why the doctrine of propitiation, I love that. The doctrine of propitiation, an easier word for propitiation, is wrath taker. Jesus is the wrath taker. And he took the wrath of God for me. And in that moment, when God poured out the wrath meant for me on him, Habakkuk 1.13, God's eyes are, it says in Habakkuk 1.13, the eyes of God are too pure to even look on evil. So when our sins are on Jesus, God laid on him the iniquity of us all. God does not look on evil. His eyes are too pure. He turns away from his son. His son cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What a cost to pay. This is beyond the crown of thorns. This is beyond the impalement. Now, one more thing. He's dying during what feast? passover and that goes all the way back to exodus how many plagues were there Ten plagues. 10 plagues over egypt 10 plagues anybody remember plague number 9 darkness darkness over all of egypt except the land of goshen for how long 3 days plague number 9 darkness for 3 days and in that moment God passed judgment on Egypt. Oh, wow. You have rejected me. You've rejected, I've given you all of these opportunities to see the finger. Chapter 8, verse 19, this is the finger of God. The magician said to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh would not listen because his heart was already hard. God, you talk about a benevolent God. You have rejected me, and my judgment is now falling on you. What was plague number 10? Death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Death of the firstborn sons of Egypt. Now, look at the cross. It says that at the sixth hour, what happened? Darkness came over the earth at the sixth hour darkness came over the earth sixth hour to ninth hour is how long three hours God passed judgment on humanity you have rejected my son and now it will cost you nothing it will cost me my son God demonstrates his love for me in this, that while I am a sinner, deserving the wrath, the fury of God, Jesus died for me. It's the greatest suffering of all. So, life application. Life application. Don't be a mere what? What? Hear of the word and so deceive ourselves. Do what it says. See, Jesus always wants us to know something and he wants us to do something. So here's my question. Jesus knew his mission. What about us? Do we know our mission? Let's just, we have enough time. Just talk about that, just for a couple of minutes. What what might our mission be? Thank you, Bill, to take the Word of God into the world, and that world might be where? Across the street, to our next-door neighbor, maybe to our extended family, to an unbelieving niece or a nephew, to an unbelieving grandchild, to an unbelieving parent, to take the word of God to the world, and the world can be both near and far. Okay, good. What else is our mission? To love our neighbor as Ah, yes, you're getting into that royal commandment thing here. The two greatest commandments on which the whole law hangs, love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself, Mark 12, 30, and 31. Mm-hmm. What else might be our mission? To make disciples of all nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Mm -hmm. And I guess then I would ask are we protecting our mission? Jesus did. Do we? Do we protect our mission? From what would we need to protect our mission? ourselves, mm-hmm. distractions. distractions, it's easy to be distracted, to get off mission. Mm-hmm. Pardon? The oh, yeah, the legalist Pharisee, uh-huh. because Absol- that's true in life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good, Brenda, absolutely. I think that we would need to protect um, our mission from the evil one. What did Jesus say in John 10, 10? The thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full, but the thief has come. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, First Peter 5 and 8. Ephesians 6 and 12. Our enemy is not flesh and blood but it's the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And when we do not guard the heart, the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23, we become easy pickings, and he can derail us from, from mission. You know, I think that we need to protect our mission from the American culture. Um... Billy and I are the same age. We're one month apart in age. Um, And a lot of baby boomers in the room. Uh, Leah and I just got back from a much-needed vacation, and we met a lot of baby boomers who are interpreting retirement, uh, I believe, in a non-biblical manner. But I shouldn't expect anything different because they don't belong to Jesus. But all they did, they have bought... hook, line, and sinker into the American culture. You work as hard as you can, earn as much as you can, uh, so that you can retire as soon as you can and go to Florida and collect seashells for the rest of your life. I believe, Isaiah 43, verse 7, and God says, everyone whom I made for my glory. Whom I made for my glory. There's my purpose, my mission, to bring God glory. And if he gives me one more day of life, Lamentations 3.22, because of your great compassion, I'm not consumed. I did not die in the middle of the night. So therefore, today on Saturday, I should work to bring God glory. If I have the breath of life, I should work. That's not the American culture. It's all about me, myself, and I. So I think that Romans 12, 1 and 2, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be ye transformed by... Ah, we got to protect our minds to make sure they're anchored in absolute truth, immovable. So do we know our mission? Do we protect our mission? And are we paying? Are we willing to pay the cost to fulfill the mission? It might be that... um, you would love, 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 love to be in this location of LCF, but you know there's another location getting ready to launch, and uh, you need to be a part of that launch team. And that's a part of paying to fulfill the mission, being willing to say, yes, here I am, send me. So I don't want us to look at tonight's conversation in Christology and go, oh, yeah, it was wonderful. No, we got to bring it to roost. The rubber has to meet the road. What Jesus did, we've been made in his image. And in 1 John, I love this, 1 John 2, it says that when, if I claim to be a follower of Jesus, I must live as Jesus lived. 1 John 2 and 6. I want to live like him. And in the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, one day at a time, sweet Jesus, I can. And life is not any better. Life does not get sweeter. So there we have it. And God's people say, amen. amen. All right. Thank you.